We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. With Tony Wilson. Welcome, speech lovers, to the first edition of the Speakola podcast. I am Tony Wilson. I'm an author from Melbourne, currently hiding in a cupboard away from four children, scratching at the door, trying to be a part of this welcome as well. Hope you are coping with your COVID-19 lockdowns. Um, certainly, it's been a time where I thought I might get to this project, the making of the podcast of the website for those of you who don't know the website, Speakola's been a passion project of mine for the last five years. It's a place where I collect and curate and feature my favourite speeches. Got into it because I found myself visiting speeches like the I Have a Dream speech or or the This Is Water speech from David Foster Wallace regularly and thought, wouldn't it be nice if there was a place um, where all sorts of great speeches were housed And it's ended up being that some of those speeches are really famous and and some of them are just speeches from punters like myself putting up wedding speeches or MC speeches or eulogies and Speakola being a place where those speeches can be shared. The website's done really well. I think last year we had 1.3 million hits and visitors from all over the world, people contributing speeches from all over the world. The story of how I got started and how I made the site is actually on Richard Feidler's Conversations podcast this week. For the podcast, I'm thinking a kind of song exploder sort of format for those who know that podcast where we speak to someone who's delivered or written or researched a speech and then unpack the speech, work out how it happened, what was the historical context, what were some of the challenges, what was the experience like, and then play play a speech of the week, which may either be the speech that belongs to the interviewee, or it may be that we feature a historic or great speech. To get things going, we're going to go with eulogies, how to write a great eulogy, how to get the balance right between humour and serious content, how to honour the person. And I have an outstanding guest to guide me through that, the person whose eulogy pretty much launched the site. Damien Callanan is an acclaimed Australian comedian. His shows The Lost World War I Diary, Swingman, Spaznuts, they've all been comedy festival classics here in Australia. And his current project, the Brodgy Creek Community Podcast, is an absolute must-listen for those of us captive in isolation. And here he is, Damien Callanan. Well, it's a very special day for Speakola, uh, the first guest on the Speakola podcast, and a very appropriate one too, because Damien Callanan featured as the very first speaker on the website with the eulogy he delivered to his mother, Kathleen, and in subsequent years, his father, Adrian's eulogy has been put up, and also a very beautiful speech that he did um, at a Wheeler Centre event about Locut Jam. Uh, he's a Melbourne comedian, uh, a wonderful speaker, and a great honour to have you on the podcast, Damien. Pleasure to be here and to set this ship a sail. Oh, it's hopefully going to be amazing. I, I, I think within three or four weeks we'll have Barack Obama yeah. in that chair, but uh, in the meantime... He'll be pinching himself. Absolutely. Really, had Damien Callanan here. Well, it was, a, it was an amazing speech, and over the years that have followed, I've, I've had many people come up to me and say that it was um, a speech which assisted them in writing their own eulogies. Uh, and so the, the goal of this podcast is to, is to tell the stories of speeches and, mm. and how they came to be and even some of the craft of how they're written. So can, what can you tell us about these two eulogies? Well, let, let's start with mums because it was a very specific speech I had to give, not just because it was eulogy, but um, mum died in pretty horrific circumstances. Dad accidentally ran her over and she was in a coma for five days before we had to turn life support off. And um, it's an interesting thing, thing that happens in, I've discovered, 
thankfully I haven't had to live it very often, but in deaths were of particularly tragic circumstances, people really rally around the family and it was packed, you know, standing room only at St Mary's Greensboro. Um, all of us, all of my siblings had fr- friends, far-flung places, people flew in, um, it would have been 30 or 40, maybe more people from the comedy and theatre world come to support me, many of whom had never met mum. So there's a real responsibility when you're delivering your eulogy in that circumstance to honour those people by telling mum's story properly and also to her life gets hijacked by the tragic event and to put that out of people's mind and just concentrate on the woman who she was. And she was a very lovable woman, so it wasn't a, it wasn't a tough task. So, yes, the responsibility was a lot higher and I put a lot of thought into it um, for that reason. Take us back to actually the decision for you to be the eulogist and <laughs> yeah. and and even you know how the writing process started because I imagine this is a week of trauma and yeah. and time commitment you know things would have been just demanding you the whole time I mean how did that happen um, I guess with dad because I'd had mum's eulogy I'd thought about it a bit more beforehand but mum mum was in very good health um, and we were probably expecting that she would outlive dad by some time really. So there was no preparation other than this tragic accident. And my brother actually asked me to do it while mum was still alive, literally across her prone, comatose body. <laughs> Chris, Chris, I love him, but he's an organiser. He's, he's the one who has, has to help you move. He'll drop you off at the airport. He's, he's great, but he just kind of goes into this. I guess it's you know, we all have different ways of dealing with grief, and that for him that's one. It's like where we're going to have dinner and all that sort of stuff. So while inside I was going, seriously, you're asking me now? <laughs> like, she's still breathing, you know? Yeah. I knew deep down I was already going to do it. It's, it's an unusual circumstance to have someone whose job in the family is public speaking. So I didn't then give it any thought until after she passed away. And then I look, I can't, it's hard to remember the period. I do remember kind of removing myself from everyone. I'm, I didn't really go into elaborate detail and discussion with other members of the family. They all just trusted that I would tell the story my own way and that that would be representative. So, yeah, it was, it was low consultation and I do remember the night before, and this kind of is how the, uh, the eulogy begins, where in the Catholic Church they have the rosary, um, it's, which is a great old tradition. It's kind of like the bee funeral, the rosary. <laughs> it's when the people who can't take a day off work <laughs> for whatever reason, right. they, don't, they don't want to take a day off work. Yeah. It's also for the hardcore, you know, um, Catholics. So you basically just say a decade of the rosary, you know, not, not a full novena. but yeah. And the, and the coffin's there in place. And so we, I was at the rosary and there were a few friends came that night who weren't coming the day after. And, but it was Lent. It was the beginning of Lent. And so the, the church altar was festooned with an impossibly large wooden chair a gnarly two to three metre knobbly stick, pair of look what looked like pair of sixteen men's sandals, all draped with the purple fabric, which is the, kind of the colour of Lent. And um, I was sitting there, not thinking about anything other than, okay, I've got my opening, <laughs> which was, which was, um, I kind of just and I. It's interesting. This is, I actually use this technique ever since that day. I use this technique in a slightly different way when I do stand-up. But I basically said, oh, a lot of my family, not even my family know this, but years ago mum said to me, when I die, I want um, on the altar a giant chair uh, with a two to three metre gnarly stick and a pair of 16 men's sandals and draped with purple fabric and uh, up to five or six priests because there were a lot of a lot of priests there. Yeah. Another sign of the tragic funeral. More more priests come out of the woodwork. They want to they want to be known. I did Kathleen yeah. Callanan's gig, and it was really interesting. It was a real tell because people aren't waiting for a joke at a funeral. Here's his son standing there, and I'm acting as if I'm grief stricken. And this was my favourite part about it. My family just went up. They're all in the front row. Yeah. Um, most of the comedians who were all sitting in a pocket down the back went up. And I hadn't even realised this, but most of my um, – I'm cousins with the Dorney family. Uh, Kern and Dorney and Joan Dorney were mum's uh, dad's brother and uh, sister and brother-in-law. 
very famous family. They're all like Sean Donnie is um, one of Australia's more famous journalists, like P&G correspondent for 25 years, and we share exactly the same comedy DNA even though we live in different parts of the world. Yeah. I didn't even know they were all coming. The entire Dornie family siblings were in attendance and they went up. But, but there were some... But there were just big pockets of people. Just, there was people in the middle just not knowing. Oh, that's what? That's unusual. Yeah. <laughs> not not seeing the joke. But you've got to um, – I knew that I had to plant the idea that there's going to be comedy here. Is, and tell us about comedy in a, in a eulogy because, mm. as you said, it surprised some members of the mm. of the congregation. The decision – was it an easy decision for you? Or, or? Oh, it's almost not a decision, Tony. Yet when – the way I process life is, is comedically. I don't shy away from the truth and pathos and – and probably more so than other comedians in some ways, a lot of my shows do straddle those worlds. I'm not shy to have two or three minutes of no jokes in a show if if the drama and the pathos requires it. Um, in the same way with the funeral, that's just how I write. It's how I think. And it's also um, comedy cuts through and it's much easier to tell slightly humorous stories about mum that show our love for them than than earnest ones. And so, if if you could put your, I'm not sure you can remember exactly yeah. how you wrote this, but would you have sat down and said, "What do I have to say about her?" I have to say because the way you moved yeah. quickly into was uh, what she will be doing in heaven. Yeah, wasn't yeah. It? So, so, so I started like, with something. Yeah, so start. I started comedically in that sense, but also it was it was kind of money for jam a bit because. Oh, basically, right, because mum and dad were, the true, were true believers. They, they believe in the afterlife and everything. So while I don't, I'm not going to stand there and say they're not going there. Yeah. But So I had this whole story about what mum did in their first day in heaven and, yeah. you know, basically it was just jokes about their dotage, really, just talking about that she'd um, she'd already worked out. Um, she'd asked some Peter where Dan Murphy's and the nearest pie shop was yeah. and... Um, Vouchers for the yeah, beef and bourbon and beef. Yeah, <laughs> uh, got the gold, the the gold. You know those gold vouchers that you yeah, used to get like yeah. for ten percent restaurant. Yeah, it's um you know Dimitinas in Logan Street or whatever. Just pulling those out and seeing the other members of the family around having so, so let's set up the idea in a kind of harmless way. But it's a really good technique, and I guess if you if you're thinking of of, of when you sit down, how do you write a eulogy? It's that thing where I can just tick off mm. six of the most noticeable and lovable things about this person yeah. within a comedic context. Yeah. And the next part of the speech was I basically wrote, I thought about the themes that I wanted to talk about, the things that mum was most known for, uh, her sewing, um, her ability to talk endlessly. Um, and I had little headings for each one. And so those straddled comedy and serious and that, and that and that was kind of a nice device it was a way for me to kind of tell really kind of charming but um it was quite it was quite obvious my adoration for her through those but there was you know and picking the like, mum was a really good cook but you know she had a really bad night once yeah she made what, the, the brazilian casserole and it was kind of famous across our family and so i speculated we none of us knew what it was other than it quite possibly didn't feature hair. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of really delicious stories that evoked, for the people who knew her, they knew about mum's catering and cooking. It wasn't really nice to hear a non-triumph yeah, that's right. amongst, amongst it. Yeah, and then I kind of, it, it got more serious when we started talking about um, each of our, the thing that my, I did ask my siblings, both at mum and dad, what, what what's their first memory of uh, of mum and dad, so yeah, I kind of found found ways to just keep it not just relentlessly comedic, but um, uh, yeah, I suppose reverential without being sucky. So, what sort of balance do you think you're looking for in terms of humour and emotion, mm. um, opportunity to cry and remember? Look, I think the two go side by side and, and you don't think about the two things as being separate. Um, every story, even if it has a slightly more serious flavour, can still have moments of levity in them. Um, and then equally, um, the jokes can finish with a with a boom, you know. Um, 
that has real heart to it. So I don't I don't look to separate the two. I do I do have I do look at it as a bit of a a wave. Like okay, this is the point where I really tell the audience how I feel about it. And you can't you can't put yourself in that position of vulnerability the whole time. And in some ways, the levity helps you, but it helps the audience as well. There was a moment in your mum's eulogy, I think, where the jokes have come and they've been pretty decent jokes and you've done the job of combining, um, you know, her eccentricities and her interests and Mm -hmm. who she was as a woman. And then you kind of – it really gets people, I think, when you just say what your dad wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Dad did – he was the only one who said anything about the speech. He said, I just want everyone to know how unconditional her love was. And that's something I would have um, done anyway because it is one of the beauties. And as you get older, I think you appreciate that when you do have parents who have that value, just how – what a gift it is. You meet so many people who, for whatever reason, they've fallen out with family and it's, and it's usually because there's something, you know, whether it be their sexuality or some life choice they've made that has made irreparable damage in their relationship. So, I, look, I said this. The only thing Dad asked me to make sure I mentioned today was that her love was unconditional. I thanked them for that in one of my shows and it meant a lot to both of them. But what does it mean? It means in Mum's case an unfaltering love for Dad, us, various members of our family, which I list. And there were no Category 4 restrictions with Mum's love. And I've seen in the faces of my nieces and nephews and cousins today, particularly in the hospital as we said our goodbyes, how far that love spread. No matter what she did, she loved us the same. Dad does unconditional love at Olympic standard as well. Mum has multiple gold medals in the discipline. The relationship breakdown, career changes and whatever life threw at us, she's been the constant, the reassuring voice that would love you through anything. Sounds easy, it's not. Most of us have occasions where love lapses with judgement and conditions. She never did. And at that point I went on to tell a story of the night before the accident, which was just delicious. And so when you do have a story like that, it's really good to have a, a point like that. It's really good to have something um, that tells a story, whether it be comedically or seriously. But I was doing one of my shows, The Sportsman's Night, at the um, Grape Grazing Festival at a winery, and my, uh, it was my cousin's husband's winery. Anyway, it turned into a family reunion, completely unbeknownst to me. Mum and Dad came, cousins. It was just a really good night. Um, and there's a bit in it... and. Uh, Sportsman's Night also features Troy Carrington, whose character that's been with me forever is in my stage play in the movie The Merger. And Troy is talking about a footy trip, Mary McKillop pilgrimage. <laughs> and I don't, I didn't say the full story, but essentially in it, he's talking about being on this footy trip where it's basically blokes in a minibus driving around Panola and Kurnawara, taking in all Mary McKillop's favourite sites. Like, we went to where her first uh, hospice, where her first school was, uh, where she had her last route before she took her vows. <laughs> and as I said it, my, my face kind of just swept across the room and uh, I looked at Mum and Mum was just beaming at me, like just with complete and utter devotion, like not, not a reflex or, you know, my son just said a really blasphemous thing. Yeah. These are, yeah, these are church-going, you know, believers. No, they're proper Catholics. Just smiling at me like, and I just thought, God. And I said it in the eulogy, God, I love you. Look at you. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, in the eulogy, I couldn't tell the sentence I said. I, could, I can't tell exactly what I said, lest the walls that we're, we're in fall around us. So I had people lined up afterwards going, what was the bit? What was the bit? <laughs> So, yeah, that, I mean, that's a good example of straddling the, the two worlds. The, the kind of most serious part of the speech with the, with the most, with the funniest. What about something as traumatic? You mentioned um, how your mother died. Yeah. What, what about, how are you going to treat that? Did you decide don't talk about that? Um, oh, look, I, I talked about it from the point of view of um, really for dad. I just kind of went, look, the circumstances are. are so utterly tragic. It's a it's a credit to this man how he's handled himself this week. And and Dad did have a he he kind of sucked sucked it in a bit and said, Mum would be devastated if I let myself go now and just wallowed in self pity. And he he made a decision that he was going to stay strong. Not not that he wasn't grieving. Like 
the moment where, and I mentioned this in Dad Geology, where he, he'd spoken to his priest and the priest said, oh, maybe, you know, you should say sorry to her. And while I didn't particularly believe in that, you know, he had nothing to be sorry for. It was an accident. Dad, Dad got something out of it. So I was with him when he stood over her and apologised with, you know, just tears streaming down his face, you know, falling onto her. So yeah, look, I, I tackled it from that point of view, but I didn't make it a main a main part of the speech. But but it needed to be addressed just to show what you know how brilliantly he'd handled it himself. And then to finish a eulogy is often very difficult mm. as well. Although it is worth pointing out that you never got an audience more with you, have you? No, like, no, they they right. are they'll, they'll support. If you, you cry, they'll cry with mm. you. If you laugh, they'll laugh with mm. you. All they want, all anyone wants at a funeral yeah. is is to be there together almost, isn't it? It's yeah. Just this, it's this communal thing. With mums, I finished it, and I, this formed quite a bit of the talk I did for you at the Wheeler Centre. I had this tradition with mum that I would usually buy a, a conserve. I was away on holidays. It wasn't always jam, but it was default, and she loved it, you know. And it began, I began trying to find, and she liked the funky ones, you know. Yeah. Going, Oh, <laughs> mm. fig, rosemary, and veal. Thank you. <laughs> and of course, mum was, mum was so polite; she would never go, "Oh, oh, look, you keep that one." She'd always like pop it in the pantry and yeah. probably clean it out the next stock take. But I found a locust jam, and Terry Siakis is a good comedian and podcast friend of mine. She had a locust locust tree in her backyard, and we'd had this. We were at this boozy straight A barbecue one year, and. We'd riffed on locusts forever and what, what the hell you do with them. And so um, I had this, I had her sitting in a car waiting to give to mum and I just, I was going to give it to her that night at the performance, but forgot. And so it was a bit of a tearjerker, you know, um, heart puller. At the end of it, I went, you know, anyway, I didn't get to give this to mum, so I put it on the coffin as I walked off. I was like, well, oh, oh, good on your day, mate. Thanks. <laughs> I think I might have mentioned in the Wheel of Streets that I said, I took it back at the end of the day because you know, she's never going to use it. But um, So that was, yeah, that's how I finished. That one. Dad's one was a little more emotional. I, Dad used to read to me a lot. Yeah. And I talked at some length towards the end about his impact on me and very much formed who I became. He used to read to me in accents because Dad was an amateur actor as well as a teacher. and So I just thought that was natural that, you know, you read in the accent. You give it a crack. So I finished by reading um, my favourite poem from Robbie Burns, and I didn't read it. I recited it. So I got as far as I could. Do you, do you, can you recite it still? Um, oh, it'd be a bit. I've got it here. It's, yeah. It's, uh, not long before this um, kind of, which adds to the emotional energy of it, as Dad was kind of becoming, not that he wasn't cogent, but um, it was harder to have conversations and memory was going uh, There's just less to talk about. I started reading back to him. I started reading the same things that he'd read to me when I was a kid. Uh, and this one in particular, he just he would just join in, like it was all there. Uh, and it's uh, Corn Rigs and Barley Rigs by Robbie Burns. It was upon a lammas night when corn rigs are bonny, beneath the moon's unclouded light, I held away with Annie. The time flew by with tentless heed between the late and early, with small persuasion she agreed to see me through the barley. Corn rigs and barley rigs and corn rigs are bonny. I'll never forget that happy night amongst the rigs with Annie. The sky was blue, the wind was still, the moon was shining clearly. I set her down with right goodwill amongst the rigs of barley. A kent of heart was moan, I loved her most sincerely. I kissed her o'er and o'er again amongst the rigs of barley. Corn rigs and barley rigs and corn rigs are bonny. I'll never forget that happy night amongst the rigs with Annie. The beauty of that poem is that I realised that he'd been reading that to me as a nine and ten year old, and it's basically about a bloke who takes <laughs> takes his girl out for a route in the cornfields. Yeah. Like, it is. I, I was going to. I thought you were auditioning for Outlander there. It's a, it's, right. a, it, it, it's beautiful. It just goes to show the choice of so many people try for a reading or try yeah. for something, and you're kind of desperately googling poems about grief, and and really what people want is that. I'm going to read something because he read it to me or yes. this was in his life or I remember. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you know, What's connected, yeah. 
I know the Catholic Church for a while struggled with the whole idea of having other songs and non-religious, particularly words. They've, they've moved on, thankfully. But, yeah, there, there is nothing like the connection. And, you know, Dad was a literary man, so it was, it was not hard to, to find things that connected. Well, we've actually got audio of Damien speaking at Adrian Callanan's funeral, and uh, this is a particularly fantastic bit. And then most importantly, Adrian Callanan, the dad and husband. You thought he was good at the other stuff. He was world-class here. We all had very close relationships with dad in different ways. Um, and in recent times, we've all fulfilled our role, pulling out a bit extraordinary how much time they spent looking after Dad. And we all do our bit, but I asked everyone during the week just to recall something from early in Dad's life. So I'll just go through. Uh, Annette recalled Dad finding her knickers in his briefcase at a staff meeting at Backstage High School. <laughs> Michelle remembers getting trinkets from Dad when he came home from night school. Chris recalls hearing Dad singing or wishing happy birthday through the speakers of our radiogram. Paul recalls Dad's poor attempts at leg spin bowling in the backyard. He was a wicked cake, I'd say. He's up. And I, of course, remember his face through the glass at the line-up of the orphanage. <laughs> and the love story of Adrian and Kathleen reads like a old-school Hollywood romance. It keeps going well beyond the credits. Their post-war courtship is Jean Kelly and Catherine Grayson in Anchors Away. Their country years, Eva Gabor and Eddie Epson in Green Acres. Their burgeoning family, Jean Crane and Clifton Webb in Cheaper by the Dozen. And of course, their doge, John Golden Pond, with Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn. But no. No Hollywood screenwriter would have concocted the cruel twist that ended their beautiful 61-year relationship. The unfathomably sad circumstances that took them apart would have broken the lesser man. But to his credit, he had every right to wallow in self-pity, but he didn't. He picked himself up, and rather than us losing both parents to the same tragedy, he held his head high moved on away from the woman he adored and who adored him. The moment I saw him apologise to Mum as her life ebbed away is the single most beautiful loving thing I've ever seen. So Dad passed away about eight and a half years after Mum passed away. So for, for us as a family, and I, I've talked to some of the others about this, we'd really had to look after him through this period you know, a man losing the, the woman of his life after 61 years in such a tragic way. We were all kind of like like glue around him. And he was holding himself together. It wasn't just us. So when he, when he went, it was this almost beautiful feeling of their, their release and you could see them again as who they were, both mum and dad. And it made me realise how, not that I hadn't grieved mum, but well, I was able to grieve them together as a couple. So, so Dad's was a lot. It was a lot easier to kind of write it as a celebration. It was, it was very emotional at the end, as I read the poem and so on. But um, people were. It was a life well lived. Um, it, it ended in natural causes, and there was a relief. Not, not that he was gone, but that that story could all come together. So, yeah, I, I, I don't, rem- I don't remember. I mean, it's, it's hard to say this because I've seen it because it's been videoed, but. I can viscerally remember Mum's speech and what and the patterns and the um, beats of it a lot more clearly, and the, um, the surges, emotional surges going through me, and the and the change and the response from the audience. I think with Dad's there was like an expectation it was going to be funny, so they're yeah. a little bit harder work to begin with. <laughs> yeah, go, come on, I think it's pretty. It's a pretty good bit. <laughs> like yeah. I had a bit of a crack that you know. Mum had had standing room only. She had five or six priests. And Dad's got like two priests. And there's like, there's Rose. There's heaps of Rose. What have you you been doing the last 10 years, 80 babe? Yeah. And I don't think think that bit went as well as it could have. (laughs) 
But once you got into the stride of, yeah. you, 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 you did a kind of a, a, a subsets, didn't you? You made some chapter headings. Yeah, and I used photos as, it wasn't a slideshow, but I used a photo for each subject of the various sides of Dad. The soul, the Air Forceman, the, the actor, the sportsman. and um, He delivered in spades for an amusing photo for each category oh, of his he life. Did. <laughs> he did. The, uh, the actor one is possibly yeah. you know, just one of the most perfect. But it really worked from the story I was telling too because there's a photo of Dad for the play Tattoo by Moliere and he's got an impossibly coiffed bouffant happening and big and a, collars and a parchment in his hand and looking really foppish. And, <laughs> and the story of Mum and Dad's meeting is Dad tells the story that they met, Dad was playing footy and he met her afterwards and... He asked her on a date to see him in a play the next week, and the play was called "I Was Born Gay" by Auburn Wall, and that was their favourite story. Telling, oh, of course, you know that that was the name of the play. But as I said, if Mum had seen that picture, she probably wouldn't have gone. <laughs> um, yeah, but gay didn't have the double meaning no, at that that's point. Right, but he loved it. He just still loved telling that story anyway. So, yeah, yeah. So every picture um, literally told a story. Like Dad running in the three hundred meters. And then you had the Facebook post. One, I mean, it's actually one of the most memorable Facebook posts I've, I've seen on the site. Um, and you decided just to lift that. Yeah, I wrote. Often the best reactions are the most immediate. Yeah, I basically told a story about my last moment with Dad, but then piggybacked that into one of the happiest moments with him that revolved around his parting words, which were, "I'm so proud of you." And I won't read it. It's very long. But it's um, and I read it on the day because it just told the story so well of um, his connection with me, and it was at the high point of our relationship. We we struggled a bit in my teenage years. Dad was just about to retire, and last thing he needed was someone. Not that I was difficult, but I was probably a little bit more black sheepy than the other members of the family, a little less straight down the line. Um, and then it wasn't really till I got out of home and in adult life that we, we ended up just having heaps in common. Like we just really, really loved each other's company. We talked about sport and literature and theatre. And, and there was this one night where I was just opened the Complete Works of Shakespeare Bridge at the Sydney Opera House and it was New Year's Eve and fireworks had just gone off. And I was, just, I was having like the, one of the professional times of my life and I was just t- t- talking Dad through it and he was just hanging off every word. In the same way that I used to hang off every word when he read to me. And it was this kind of epiphany of, oh, well, look, we're swapped. But we just love each other. So, um, yes, I read that as well. Damo, um, we've talked a bit about the circumstances of the particular eulogies. But in terms of tips for writing a eulogy, what have you got for us? Look, this is kind of easier said than done, but it's better to memorise the eulogies. Did you do that for both of them? Yeah, yeah. I barely looked. I barely looked at the page for mums. I just felt direct address was better. And you also, you kind of, you know, if you look at the transcript and compared to what I wrote, there was probably some variations, and and I went off on other tangents and maybe left out some good bits. But what you get is a, a more direct a relationship with the with the congregation. Some some people will be terrified of. This, I mean, it, it's my living, and I never stand there with a script, so it would have felt weird to read one too. Uh, and I thought, particularly for Mum, I thought, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn this. So I would, I, you know, and the, the processes of learning is, is is tedious. It's just blocks, but by learning it, you actually change the words too. So you constantly you learn a paragraph and they go, oh, that that I don't need that bit, or add a little bit in here. So it helps with the editing. As much as anything, and it gets rid of words that aren't speaking words. Yeah, yeah, and and your ticks come back in a little bit, but it's it's worth the process. Um, that that's kind of my main tip, and, and write it out, write it out, and then bullet point it if that if that helps. I had this. I had the script in front of me, and like a dad's one, I used it as a joke at one stage. I said, "Look, you know, Mum's speech went particularly well. Did a joke about how many hits it got on." On your on speed color and uh, so on, I said. So you know, why change the formula? And then I just started reading out pretty much mum's mum's eulogy. <laughs> uh, but I just put dad's name in. Adrian went to Santa Maria College. And was uh, 
yeah. one of the school's best netballers. <laughs> blah blah blah. Yeah, uh, I can't remember. No, I should I should move on. The uh, it, it, it's also I guess for people who are truly terrified by it, mm. it, it go back to the point, which is that everyone's with you. If you read it Absolutely. or if you don't read it, yeah, um, just get it out. And, just yeah, but reading it word for word from a page just it just separates you from from the audience, and it, and it takes away the beauty of the words that you're saying. If you, if you can look the audience in the eye and tell them the stuff, it it, it can be more terrifying. But you know, it's it's worth even even just parts of it, memorize parts of it. Mm. And and my little tip, um, I'm sometimes quite a reader of speeches. Um, is if you are going to read, just blow up the type, blow it up to sixteen <laughs> yes. or eighteen point, yeah, and then yeah. you really can be roaming with the That's eyes right, a, yeah. a lot more easily. And uh, my. Every time I MC now, I don't know about you, but if, when I'm talking to the conveners, just, uh, yeah, 20 to 24 type. <laughs> point. just getting bigger every time because I don't like putting my glasses on and off. Like, yeah. Glasses just aren't me as a comedian. So, um, but yeah, the eulogy was, yeah, I made it, made it massive. What about length? Um, oh, look, it, there's no limit on it if it's good. I reckon as well. Um, I, I recommend, like, you know, families where you kind of, everyone wants to have a say. Nah, you don't want to. <laughs> Seriously, you don't. Um, if you really want to, do, but it, it's often better condensed into one person. Um, but but it's a eulogy. It's an imperfect art on a, the most one of the most difficult days of your life. So don't beat yourself up about it. Do whatever's most comfortable for you. What about if you're wavering? As a relative who says this is the most important person in my life who's just died, I will not be able to do this. Yeah. Was, did that may not have ever crossed your mind, but you can probably imagine it would cross people's minds. I had a little bit of that situation where my best mate died, and, yeah. and I'm I'm very pleased I did it. Mm. Um, are, are you, do you do you think people should, you know, grit the teeth a bit? Is it uh, a little bit? Yeah, I, don't, I haven't met one person who who said, "Ah, oh, I did my brother's eulogy, and I wish I never had." That that hardly ever happens. I think. Even if it doesn't go the way you thought it was going to go, the act of doing it, the act of love of performing it is is everything. It's a tribute. And the harder they are, like a dear mate like yours, like Daft's and parents, the more the more rewarding the process can be, part of your own catharsis. Well, certainly um, they've been one of the most popular and most read parts of Speakola and we pretty much rely on the generosity of people who are willing to share their love and share their words and and I'm hoping really the you know part of the philosophy behind the site is that eventually you know everyone feels um, comfortable mm. putting them up and and we can have a kind of a, a a community of grief and 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 a way of sharing these lives beyond the walls of um, churches and and funeral homes and other areas where people have the privilege of hearing yeah. the, the the speeches live. And don't don't be afraid, don't be afraid to be funny. Like this is a true story. One of the priests on the day was a guy called Owen Doyle, who was actually um, member of our parish previously. Had previously been married with eight children. He was actually part of the pre kind of conference when Mum and Dad got married. After his wife passed away, he became a priest, and he wanted to, to officiate. And um, so he was one of the priests I joked about who were, you know, freeloaders getting free seats on the on the altar. And he spoke to his daughter and afterwards and went, oh, I don't know if I liked hearing all that laughter in the church. And his daughter ripped, ripped in her and just said, how can you say that? How can you come away from that not knowing that that man loved his mother and used humour to, to show that affection and kind of really went him. And in the, in the end, he actually wrote an article in the Australian Catholic Review, I think it's called now, basically saying his, his mind was changed by combination of me and his daughter, his daughter ripping into him. But. You're a revolutionary, Damo. <laughs> and, uh, and certainly I'm, I'm with you on the use of humour. Uh, and, and although I did uh, attend a funeral as well, as well with Sam Pang, a prominent Australian TV personality, and the speaker was getting a lot of laughs and Pang said to me, uh, can you give me a guarantee that no one at my funeral uh, does a tight five? <laughs> I want people sad, I want them crying, and nobody doing a tight five. 
<laughs> so uh, uh, it's all got to be balanced, doesn't it? And yeah. Weighed and and, uh, and yeah, what they would have wanted. Exactly. Yeah. Well, perfect. They are two perfect eulogies, and and thank you very much for coming on as our inaugural Beagola podcastee. Thank you. Our podcast sponsor for this week is MrYum.com. MrYum.com is the online incarnation during the COVID-19 crisis for two of Melbourne's favourite restaurants, Mamacita and Hotel Jesus. Restaurateur Matt Lane lived in New York for a long time and he brought back the American love affair with quality Mexican food and established that tradition in Australia. I'm a regular at both Hotel Jesus and Mamacita's and can't wait for them to be open again soon. But in the meantime, check out the takeaway menu at mrum.com. You'll have tortillas, tacos and quesadillas at your door in no time with reasonable prices. There's pickup in Smith Street, Collingwood, and there's also home delivery to selected inner city suburbs. mrum.com, vegan options available. Help support Matt during this tricky time. Speakola doesn't have a permanent sponsor yet, so if you'd like to help us out, do get in touch. For the speech of the week this week, we're going to play one of Damien Callanan's speeches in full. It isn't one of his beautiful eulogies. Go to Speakola to check out those. Instead, it's a speech he gave at the Toff in Town in Melbourne in July 2016 at an event I organised called Show and Tell for Grown Ups. All the speakers had to bring along some show and tell and Damien flagged during the interview what his was. Anyway, let's join him now. Damien Callanan at the Toff in Town. Please put your hands together for Damien Callanan. Yeah. Thanks, Tone. This is going to podcast. I'll need to talk this through. Um, I'm holding a fairly lurid, tartany-type bag, and inside is some more kind of tartany stuff. Oh, suspense. <laughs> and inside that is another scarf. Jar of locust jam in the middle. Wow, what a, what a build-up for an ultimately pedestrian item. Um, we're familiar with locusts, are we? Aereo bodrio japonica, I think, is the uh, botanical term for the locust. It's a flowering, uh, flowering fruit tree, um, originated in Japan, popular in South China as well. Uh, it's uh, grown commercially as a uh, fruit tree and also an ornamental tree. I never trust fruit trees that have to say they're ornamental as well. Usually means the fruit's a bit shit. <laughs> uh, if you've got to describe yourself as both things, then you need to have a good hard look at your fruit, locusts. Um, and has anyone here tasted a locust? Yeah. Um, for those who haven't, they taste like... The fruit of an ornamental tree. <laughs> Essentially. Um, they, they, this, is, this is visual, but they, they, they're one of those fruits that you go, hang, hang. Mm, mm, nice, thank you. Um, even birds, have you ever seen a bird eating a locust? It pulls exactly the same face. It's just, nah, nah, uh, uh. they just haven't got the intellect to not go to the next one. Just, no, no, it's a bit tart. Mm, uh. Oh, it's probably better for jam, but oh, oh. they just they just keep going. Humans usually have one. Just go, thank you. I like it, uh, and and somewhat like their uh, cousin, the kumquat. Um, if you put enough sugar in it and cook the shit out of it, it's probably an okay jam. That's that's about it. Um, I'm I'm from a homemade jam family. Who who are homemade jam people? Grew up with homemade jam in the house. Makes the noise, homemade jam people. Makes the noise, mainly bought f- jam people. About 50-50. 50-50. In fact, our, our, my family, we rarely went down the spreads aisle <laughs> in the supermarket. And if we did, it was just to have a kind of like a quick raid on the Vegemite. Uh, or to scoff at the people with bought jam in their trolley. <laughs> oh, Mum, the McAdams have got jam, bought jam. <laughs> Oh, it's low jewel. Oh God, <laughs> poor things. Um, but we were we were a board, we were a homemade jam family, and um, there were rules of consumption in our house. 
mum is very strict on it. Um, rule number one, spread thin. Okay, so it lasted, so the homemade jam lasted for most of the year. Spread it thin and even, of course. And number two, mum's rule was uh, you could have jam or jam and cream, but no butter and jam. <laughs> oh, does anyone else have that rule? Mum just went, no, it goes around around your mouth and just comes straight back out again. It's rubbish. <laughs> that was the rule. Although the rules of engagement used to get thrown out when Uncle Laurie came around on a Sunday afternoon for scones. And mum would have to secrete herself from the room as Uncle Laurie put on a fairly generous layer of butter, followed by a very generous layer of jam, sometimes two different varieties. <laughs> and then he'd put cream on top of that. Butter, two jams and cream. Fuck off, Uncle Laurie. <laughs> we love you, but mum would just be pale and worn after that. Now, our family had a tradition. It was called Operation Apricot Jam Day. Every January, for those who had, who had a stone fruit tree in your family, you'll, you'll be aware of it. This was day, no one else, no one was allowed out. That was it. Everyone was on, on board for Apricot, Operation Apricot Jam Day. Uh, and I was the youngest, smallest, and lithest and most agile of the family. So, where the ladders and my other siblings couldn't get, I would be forced up higher and higher. Now, ordinarily, on a normal day, my mum wouldn't have, if she'd seen me in a tree, she would have ordered me down, but no. Not on Operation Apricot Jam Day. On OAJD, Mum would send me up <laughs> through the canopy, higher and higher into rarefied air. And Dad wasn't a great pruner, so there was just branches growing on weird angles, sticking me in the back. I'd, I'd be covered in saps, like I was like come out of some kind of like come out of some kind of like sack, birth sack. Just, <laughs> just. just just writhing, just trying to get further. Just, I came, once I came across the body, the skeleton of a World War II parachutist, just <laughs> higher and higher into the top of the tree. And I, every now and again, I just caps a glimpse of mum through the mottled leaves, and she'd be down there looking up with her apricot bulging apron, just looking at me. No further! I'd just be, I'd be holding onto a bow that was just. She goes, no, no, you can't get down, no. No, there's more over there near the electric fence. <laughs> I don't care if there's a bird of prey eating it. Get them! <laughs> now, the skill then was to make the apricot jam last for the rest of the year. And unfortunately, my brother Paul, who's actually here tonight, um, he had a voracious teenage appetite. We used to, we'd often drop short around September, October which time then we'd move on to the plum jam from Arnie Dot's plum tree from Reservoir. That'd get us through about mid-November and then the shame on mum's face. We're in Safeway, Greensboro, when I just see the trolley just turn down the spreads aisle. <laughs> the gingham top jars had dwindled to the point where mum had to buy bought jam. You could see people looking at her, whispering, Kathleen's got bought jam in her trolley. <laughs> But it was never as good. It was never as good as Mum's jam. Because my mum could cook. Like, mum could cook. Like, in fact, our families were really kept together by Mum's cooking. Like, at Christmas, we used to play a cricket game against my cousins, the Andersons, in the driveway. And they usually turned into open revolt. And the only thing that kept them coming back every year, because we destroyed them, <laughs> was that Mum's over at the end of it. Now, Mum was an old-fashioned cook. Anyone remember the, Sim the Simplicity Cookbook? The Women's Weekly Simple... We used to call it the Simple City Cookbook. <laughs> Had a gingham pattern on the front. It was classic old CWA-style cooking. But Mum started to become more exotic as she got older. She started to move from, you know, mixed grills to Kaisi Ming. She started moving from shepherd's pie to apricot chicken. <laughs> Until one day, Mum, fateful day, Mum overreached her ambition. And that was the day my Mum made the Brazilian casserole. <laughs> now, the Brazilian casserole, I'm not exactly sure what it was, but we're all reasonably sure that it meant it was devoid of hair. <laughs> now, those who were there that fateful night can only remember two of the ingredients. And the two main ingredients were beef... And instant coffee. Oh, wow. I'll say those again just so they can sink in. Beef, cubed, and instant coffee. We tried everything. We tried salt, 
pepper, ice cream, that shit would not stay down. It was the only time I ever saw my father actively wish we had a dog so he could give it to it. <laughs> so mum's tastes had become quite exotic as she got older. Now, mum was also, and this is a thing, a bit of a tradition in our family, we're gift givers, particularly on holidays. We love to come back with souvenirs. Now, often when you get souvenirs from holidays, they're a bit shit and you just go, oh, thank you, and then just don't know what to do with them. Mum is pretty good. I was pretty good. She always finds something you could either consume or that had good sentimental value. Uh, she, look, her strike rate wasn't perfect. The um, um, monkey arm sketch back scratcher from her first cruise, not, not, not one of her finer moments. Uh, nor was the Cornish fisherman smog, to be honest. She managed to find one in jade. Yeah, jade Cornish fisherman snog. It's not a colour you'd associate with the scrumpy drinking smugglers of the southeast of England, southwest of England, but mum found it. And this began, we began to reciprocate this. When I, when I became an adult, not so going on tours, I'd always find things for her. And, and mum used to absolutely crave and, and relish the stories that were associated with each. Oh, look, it's an iron ore necklace from Broken Hill or some Belgian lace from Bruges or the... Monkey arm, back scratcher, she'd forgotten she'd given me and I gave back to her. <laughs> and so one day I was on holidays in, uh, in Batemans Bay and I found Locut Jam. Now, my only previous experience with Locuts, apart from my first <laughs> moment, was uh, uh, Terry Siakis, who's a comedian friend of ours uh, and writer. She was having a party in her share house in Fitzroy and they had a Locut tree and we all tasted them together. It was like a share house with only one... Uh, organically grown fruit, and they were all starving artists, but they had, that's, how, that's the reputation of Locut has. They hadn't tried them. <laughs> <laughs> so we all tried them together, and Locut's became kind of a, a symbol of my friendship with Terry. So when I saw these, I bought two jars, one for, one for Mum and one for Terry Siakis. So I got home, and uh, well, I hadn't worked out when I was going to see Mum next. And I'd been asked to perform at the Yarra Valley, Yarra Valley Grape Grazing Festival at um, my cousin's winery. Uh, and I was, do- I was doing one of my solo shows, a show called Sportsman's Night, which is, some of you may remember, the sequel was a show called The Merger more recently. It's about a country town footy club. Uh, anyway, I was performing Sportsman's Night. It was a dinner and show affair, so cabaret seating. And all my family decided to come. It was kind of last minute. Not all my family, but a lot of them, my cousins. And mum and dad were there. And just before I left, I found out they were coming. So I put the local jam in the console of the car and turn up. And you know, while I was doing the show, it was one of the times I really realised just how unconditionally loving my mother is. Because they were very supportive. They would come to see all of my shows. But and not that my stuff is particularly offensive, but I never used to edit it because mum and dad were there. I would just tell the show as it was. And there was a particular, it was a very lit room, unlike this. And as I moved across, I was doing a routine... Um, Troy Carrington, the coach of the Bodgy Creek Football Club, and I'll, I'll just do a little bit of a routine so you can get the context. He was telling a footy trip story, and they're always slightly... His footy trips were to things like the Mozart Trail from Prague to Vienna, just to give you a bit of an idea. <laughs> so Troy's telling his story. Um, you know, we're on the uh, footy trip in 2002. We'd done the Mary McKillop pilgrimage. <laughs> and all the boys were dressed up in the brown habits of the Josephite order with the white wimple and the... And the ABC symbol on the front, the blue thing for the Catholics with it in the room. I've got an eye for detail. Anyway, what we done, right, when we went to each of the um, her famous sites, like we, we stopped, the bus stopped off first at the uh, hospital, then her first school, uh, where she had her last route before she took her vows. <laughs> and as I said that last line, <laughs> where she took her last route before she took her vows... Without meaning to, my eye line completely moved. And I'm sorry to stare at you, madam, who's looking at me. Not like my mother. Did you smiling at least? But mum was looking at me. There was no judgment. There was no appall. She, maybe she didn't get it. I'm not sure. <laughs> but she was standing there holding my father's hand, looking at me like I'd just told her I'd been canonised myself. <laughs> Damien Callan, the patron saint of blaspheming about other saints. <laughs> Anyway, it was just a beautiful moment on stage. I had this moment, I just looked at her and I'm like, my God, I love you. She just completely had not judged me and I realised I could say anything and be fine. Anyway, the next day, uh, I, was going for a, I went for a run. I came home um, and the phone rang. It was my brother Paul and he told me the news. And the news was that um, Dad had run Mum over. 
uh, in the driveway their retirement village. And uh, mum was still alive. She'd been rushed to hospital. I can remember where I was. You know those moments in your life when you can remember exactly where you were? I can remember I was standing and I was just staring out the window of my faux warehouse dwelling in Maribyrnong. Probably wondering why I was living in a faux warehouse dwelling in Maribyrnong, to be honest. And I went to the hospital and the first thing I saw when I got there was mum going past on a gurney. And I'd seen this about two years before, maybe 18 months before, on Christmas Eve, mum had uh, had a cocktail of drugs and 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 I'd kind of arrived at exactly the same moment and seen her go across and we all thought she was going to make it that time. And she she pulled through. So I had this moment of seeing exactly the same thing. I went, oh, mum's going to be all right. It's going to be fine. Um, Anyway, about two days later, we kind of heard the news that we expected, um, that it was non-survivable and we had to turn off life support. Now, when, uh, when we turned off life support, the whole family were around like a tableau, kind of holding hands and had scarves. There's a Collingwood scarf around mum's neck. Um, the only thing ruining the picture, to be honest. <laughs> and, uh, and then they tell you when, when life support gets turned off, it can happen immediately or it can take a while. Um, so there was that moment where the machine got turned off and then mum snored, pretty much. <laughs> Just, and it was a really guttural kind of... Which, and so we were trying not to laugh. Um, and then time kicked on. It got to about half an hour. got to three quarters of an hour. People started, like, moving positions. And then eventually one of my brother-in-law's, brother-in-laws just went, I might go to the pub. Which, which was fine. It was exactly the right thing. It wasn't for me at the moment. So gradually the tableau broke up. And I, I managed to stay with her for most of the time. And... Uh, Went home for a couple of hours and I was, I was there when she passed away. Um, we, went, we went back to mum and dad's house later in the day. And because I was the one, I was the one there, it was me and my partner Joe at the time, were the only ones there when it happened. So I was having kind of a different process. I think for some of my siblings and family, it was, she was already gone. But for me, it was the moment when she actually passed away. So we went back to the house and I, and I kind of didn't want to be with other people. So I went, I went into the um, mum's walk-in robe. <laughs> And I was just kind of like touching her stuff. And that's the stuff and the stuff here, like that's mum's scarf. And being near her stuff actually helped me connect her a bit. <laughs> and then about five minutes later, I came out wearing mum's kimono. <laughs> just went, too soon? Um, uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, I got asked to do the eulogy, which Tony talked about. And uh, at the end, it was it was a... It was a great honour to be asked to do it, and a bit obviously a difficult, uh, difficult task. And I wanted to make it celebrated because I think the thing with a situation like a death as tragic as that, where my father had been so, you know, a man had been with his wife for 61 years, and for it to end in such a awful way, I didn't want their story to be hijacked by that event. But at the same time, that meant lots of people came to the funeral who didn't know her, people who were coming to support me and my family. So I wanted to make it funny and I wanted to make it celebratory and tell all that stuff, like about her cooking and apricot jam and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, as I got to the church, I realised this was still sitting in the console of the car, hadn't got to give it to her. So just so I could pull the heartstrings of the audience a little bit more, as I finished the speech, I put that on the coffin as I walked off. Um, I took it back afterwards. She wasn't going to fucking use it. (laughs) (laughs) So so anyway, I found this recently... uh, I was moving house recently and I found it and it was still in my pantry and I was decluttering because I was moving to a much smaller place and I was really, really being quite ruthless and getting rid of things. And I almost threw it out and then I thought, no, I don't want to ever run out of mum's jam. <laughs> so all the stuff here is other stuff. This was the scarf mum made me when uh, I started at uni. <laughs> my first overseas trip, mum made me an undie bag. <laughs> And I've still got it, and I take it everywhere I go. Um, so I think just to finish off with, um, I think it might be good for us all just to get through this moment together. Let's all let's all pretend to taste a locut. <laughs> Count of three: one, two, three. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, that's it for episode one 
A huge thanks to Damien Callanan. You can check out Damien Callanan's stuff at damiencallanan.com.au. Look under the merch tab and make sure you subscribe to the Bodgy Creek Community Podcast. It is hilarious. Thank you to David Bridie for providing the theme music and thank you to Declan Fay, who you can normally hear on the Sweetest Plum Podcast, for helping me with some production. I'd love you to subscribe to this podcast too and also to keep visiting, recommending and sending in speeches to speakola.com. I'm Tony Wilson. I'm an author. You can check out my books at tonywilson.com.au and I'll be back in a fortnight with the next episode. See you then. See you then.